This is Indie Colorcast, powered by Radio Kismet. This is Andrew Benioff with the Independent Lodging Congress for the Indie Colorcast Project. Today, I'm happy to welcome Bruno Hyde. Bruno is the founder and CEO of Rome, the first global co-living provider where people sign a lease once and then roam among other magical properties across three different continents. Bruno, welcome. Glad you could join us. Thank you so much for having me, Andrew. Fantastic. So let's start way back when. So wait, am I right in saying that you are Swiss? Austrian, just next door. Austrian. Okay, Austrian. Apologies. That was probably a really big screw up there. But um, So you grew up on a farm... Uh, you grew up on a farm with a bed and breakfast in the Alps. Tell us about that experience a little bit and just how was that uh, growing up in a place like that? Uh, Definitely was interesting. It was one of those small towns where you have uh, 24 inhabitants in summer and then you have 15,000 in winter. So it's pretty similar to some regions in Rockies or in Maine or even Bali in Indonesia reminds me a lot of that. Um, But it was close to an alpine pass. So it was always, you always had a sense that there's a bigger world um, beyond where you grew up. So there was always some magazine left behind or some newspaper left behind, uh, which was always interesting. And I bet there, I bet you had some really interesting people stop in to stay with you that had interesting other sort of worldly experience. Oh yeah, absolutely. A lot of bikers, I remember. It's beautiful. uh, If you ride a motorcycle, it's a beautiful pass over the Alps. What about your educational background? I read that you um, actually dropped out of high school, but that you've started four companies. That's sort of an interesting juxtaposition. It is to a certain degree. I was 17 and I was pretty much in in mutual agreement. And as you grow older, you you try to become more introspective and work on yourself. But I think it was a little bit owed to the Austrian education system. So it's in general a relatively conservative country, a a uh, country that doesn't have the American sense of civil society of somebody saying, hey, can we try this in a certain different way? So um, it definitely was a pretty conservative school as well. So there always was this intention there, but it definitely got supercharged by that educational experience to, okay, now I'm out of here. Let's try to do completely different. And it's funny because it's in a tourism region. So um there was an inverse correlation of people who did good in school and then actually did good things in hospitality. So it was mostly the people who were told as 16, 17-year-olds, what the hell are you doing here? Uh, uh, you're never going to amount to anything. And now the ones who run the interesting projects. So um, it's an interesting, relatively common trajectory. So so not, not much of a um, country that sort of supports entrepreneurship, would you say? Oh, definitely in a certain degree, yeah. It used to be an empire for a long time. Then we had a a brief stint of the Second World War, and then it became this two-party system. So uh, not too entrepreneurial, I think, describes it quite well. Some of the companies you've started prior to Rome were highly technical. Uh, Is your technical background all self-taught? Uh, pretty much. I mean, it was the 90s, so the internet was just coming up, and yes, you could get a good electrical engineering degree, you could get a information technology programming degree. Um, but a lot of the stuff that came up back in the day was just so new that you actually couldn't really get an education. Um, so it were 
mostly people who said, oh, that's interesting. Can we use it this way or can we use it that way? So I was always fascinated by complex systems and technology, especially at that time, um, played pretty well to those interests. Well, so one of those is called System One. Can you talk about that for a second? What, what, what kind of uh, company was that? Uh, it was basically done in, back then it was called semantic web, but it was basically what we see today as machine learning algorithms and other things. So we built custom search engines for companies like McKinsey or BBC. So when they had a certain information workflow that they wanted to support internally or do something that wasn't possible with existing technologies, we would get our heads down and try to figure out a way to make it happen. Interesting. So did, did that you know, th- those problems you were looking to solve when you built those, co- you had some other companies also uh, that were that were um, quite technical, and then you built Rome. Did, did these previous companies lead you to Rome, or did you always want to be in hospitality? Did you always have this thing sort of tugging at you saying, I really want to return to hospitality, or was it, was it an accident? Uh, it was an accident, and it was actually the opposite. So, so when journalists ask... Uh, um, what made you start that company, the, the go-to answer is childhood trauma. And I had a pretty happy childhood, but it was a farm. It was, uh, um, we rented out a couple of rooms. Uh, uh, there was a small restaurant in summer. And that mostly interfered with my interests. So if you're 16 year old with a C64 or an Amiga, the, the last thing you want to do is make sure the cows are getting home on time or uh, um, helping to clean the dishes for the restaurant. Not because of the dish cleaning part, but you just want to be closer to technology. So, And also living with other people. So this hospitality residential hybrid was pretty far away from my 20s and, and even till the mid-30s. I For years, I had a apartment in an office building because I couldn't even stand living with other people in the same building, uh, let alone in the same apartment or in a similar situation. So it's a really interesting trajectory, which I haven't fully figured out, but it was one of those things just with technology that a couple of bigger trends came together, a couple of personal developments came together, and then you start developing this itch of this should exist and it doesn't. So why not just get started and build it? Besides that itch, I mean, you, you, was there some kind of a specific experience that was a turning point for you to go after improving the real estate industry to make it more aligned with the current workforce? I mean, obviously, when you started this, it was way pre-COVID. Um, you and I have known each other for a number of years. And when you started it, the, the idea of, quote unquote, co-living, especially on different continent seemed pretty far out, I have to admit. At least for me, it was. I was like, wow, that's super interesting. Now with what's going on with COVID, it seems fairly prescient. I mean, you you really sort of looked into the future. Obviously, you didn't know this was going to happen, but was there experience that started this? No, I mean, there were a couple of personal experiences. When I came to San Francisco in 2011, um, I met a bunch of people and we moved into a warehouse in Soma and then got kicked out of that warehouse after one and a half years because uh, there were some after-hour parties, uh, which the neighbors and the landlord didn't really appreciate. And then a buddy found this old, really decrepit motel. So it was really uh, um, trash up to your waist, uh, uh, raining through the rooftop. But we thought, hey, that actually has quite nice bones. Can we just spend a couple of months emptying that out? But that was more of a personal living situation, starting to dabble in, in more 
social housing and accommodation lifestyles. And I remember Jared, that's the name of the guy who started it. Uh, he was dabbling, should we do something down in Colombia and a couple of other places? And it was always, it never intrigued me personally as a business. It was more helping out a buddy think that through. But it was then, um, I'm quite a late bloomer when it comes to traveling. So I was in my mid-30s when I started uh, uh, spending longer times in locations like Bali. And it was really then and there when it coalesced that you had a couple of technological trends, Wi-Fi got good enough in places like Bali, that you could start to see a lifestyle that's supported by infrastructure that people always fancied, but that wasn't really practical or feasible at that point, becoming feasible. So it was really in 2014 and 15, spending more time in Bali, um, seeing that, hey, actually that could make sense. Really interesting. And and so you have locations. Talk a little bit about Rome. What is what is um, for those of uh, those of um, our listeners who don't know anything about it? What is Rome? What is what 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 does it offer? So what we're basically doing is we're taking over struggling boutique hotels when people thought, oh, we had a nice restaurant and it's working quite well. How hard can it be to um, build a hotel? Then they go to build a hotel and then they see, oh, it's quite difficult. So there's a lot of inventory out there um, that doesn't really always necessarily have the capacity to run well as a boutique hotel. So the basic idea is, can we just take that inventory? Because if you look at the topology of the building, having your private bedroom, bathroom, but then at the same time, having an on-site co-working space, having a beautiful, accessible commercial kitchen studio that you share um, makes sense from a housing perspective. And they're already struggling boutique hotels sometimes out there. Um, that would be the perfect foundation to build something. So it was really those two things coming together, which led to the idea, hey, why can't we get a bunch of them and uh, just come up with this global network that you're able to travel from A to B and live this lifestyle that's more location independent, as we called it back in the day. Interesting. And so you have you have locations currently, is this correct, San Francisco, Miami, Tokyo, and Bali? Uh, we did have. We actually already pre-COVID, I think the original sin that we had and that we made is that we started it as a venture-backed company and starting a real estate operating company as a venture-backed company doesn't make a lot of sense. So the growth expectations that don't really work with the margin expectation of building a sustainable business. So we already started about a year ago pre-COVID to offload those properties to other operators so that we can focus on developing our own sites. Up until then, for four and a half years, we did operate in San Francisco, Miami, uh, in London, in Bali, in Tokyo. We had a project um, that was about to launch earlier this year in New York, which then, because of COVID, was also passed on. So right now we are focusing on transitioning the company from a more asset-light venture-backed operator to a very traditional real estate company. And what locations are you going to start with? Um, that's a good question. So we spend a lot of time looking into, especially pre-COVID, it didn't make any sense to go for major cities that might change a little bit. We haven't seen the change yet that would make us too optimistic that that's feasible. So we started looking into, should we do more of a Soho farmhouse type business model where we go one or two hours outside of New York, San Francisco, kind of those major expensive urban uh, metropolises? Should we go to smaller cities like Savannah, Georgia or Porto instead of Lisbon? Or should we go for pretty exotic locations? And that's pretty much what we settled on. So one project that we can start talking about will be in Kigali in um, 
Rwanda, to Central Africa, uh, which is a pretty interesting market because they have a lot of existing inventory. That's kind of the 80, 100 bucks a night category. Uh, they do have a couple of 800 bucks a night, one and only, and Singitas. Uh, but they don't really have a boutique hotel category. And for us, it was always this mix of different durations of stay. So if you have a solid demand on people who might want to stay in a city for two or three days and mix that with people who stay a couple of months or in some locations, even for a couple of years, that works really well from a product perspective and also from a financial perspective. So long story short, we think that those exotic locations, both financially and also it's a ton of fun is the most interesting way of going forward. Interesting. So what's your design process like in creating these kind of uh, spaces? It's basically a twofold process. So now that we're a little bit more flexible as we're doing those ground up developments, we're actually stealing an idea from a small grocery chain um, in Western Austria where I grew up. So they did something pretty clever. They went to young architects who did maybe two or three single family homes and told them, hey, those are the operational specifications and the budget for a box for a supermarket slash grocery store go crazy, but stay within those limitations. And so they ended up uh, building a bunch of them that then uh, Tyler Brule at Wallpaper and Monocle became a big fan of them. They started winning international architecture prizes. So we're going to do pretty much the same thing. Uh, we have a pretty tight operational perspective, not branding. So, so it's not, oh, those are signature colors, or we want to have certain aesthetic criteria, but very strict functional criteria. And then we go and pair it up with good local architects and, again, tell them, go crazy. That should be uh, uh, one of the most interesting projects that you ever do in your career. Oh, amazing, amazing. So do you do most of these projects with separate capital partners for each each project that you set up? How, how do you, how do you uh, look at each project? I mean, the good thing, and that's also a little bit the factor why we pick those locations, is that they are not too capital intense. So if you look at a place like Kigali, you can build a really beautiful 25-key property for two and a half, three million dollars. And that is something where we do have the standing that we can just roll in the development fee and get construction loans that we then subsequently replace with capital that's readily available in those locations. So it's really the, the upfront equity requirements are in a couple of hundred grand. And also we want to have them to a certain degree be cooperatively owned. So the person who starts the coffee shop or the on-site restaurant, she gets a stake in the equity of the building as well. Oh, that's great. So you're actually really, you're, is that one of the sort of uh, pillars of what Rome is trying to do, trying to lift up the other entrepreneurs in the community that you're in? That's definitely the idea. And it's informed by being so burned uh, by the venture capital model which is wholly unsuitable so uh, one of the things that we're going to do is that we actually will incorporate the operating company as almost like a nonprofit, and that sounds pretty hippie and esoteric but if you start uh, taking a look out there there's a bunch of companies who work in a similar way uh, vanguard the large fund manager is a pretty good example they size this uh, giant german optical company you might have seen it on a sony camera their lenses uh, they are basically all nonprofits and they come up with really good governance mechanisms and other things. So 
as a hospitality company, you still, especially if you're acting globally, you still want to have a platform company. So you want to centralize all the technology that you build, your, your customer support, the operations and all those things. But they don't really make sense as an extractive business um, because there's just so much operational overhead. It's not like an Airbnb where you facilitate a marketing transaction and that's pretty much it. It's really the day-to-day -day business. Uh, uh, so you can't really make money out of it. The money is in the real estate, but at the same time, you want to have a platform company that acts as a service provider to those different assets that you have all over the world. That's really interesting. And are most of the properties that you're looking at uh, going forward going to be about 25 rooms? That's the sweet spot that we have. So we try to look for plots that would allow for a little bit of an expansion so that we can come up to 40, 50, but that was always the sweet spot based on our existing properties. Eventually, you're hoping to obviously have multiple properties across the globe that people can jump from one to the next. With it. They'll have a membership and then they would jump from one to the next. Is that the idea? Absolutely. That was always the vision. But again, uh, uh, I don't think it's doable with managed capital. Uh, you need to build it as a real estate company. Uh, it's a little bit slower maybe in the beginning, uh, but it compounds over time. and. It's just a real estate business, so it needs a real estate business model. One of the things I wanted to ask you, and I've been asking a lot of folks that I've been talking with recently, what is inspiring you today to keep you creative? I mean, are there things that you are reading or listening to or uh, activities that you're doing that giving you inspiration and, and creativity, as as especially during this difficult time? I'm in my 40s, so it's mostly people, I guess. It's It's this... How can you find some sort of fulfillment in this hospitality industry, which can be quite challenging? And there's a funny side note uh, for Rome. Uh, the idea was pretty much born on the at the bar of a guy who took over a really shoot dive bar in Ubud, which was at the beginning of the driveway from where I was living at that time. And it's by a guy called Will Goldfarb. And some of your listeners might know him from the Chef's Table uh, pastry episode. And so he's one of the world's most renowned uh, pastry chefs. And he traveled Europe. He came back to New York. He did a pastry tasting menu place uh, in New York. Went phenomenally well. Had a massive fallout with all his partners. Had some health issues. Had pretty much his whole life was crumbling. And he was going, he had an offer for a consulting gig back in Bali. So he took that consulting gig and then licked his wounds for two or three years. And then was ready again to take over that um, dive bar and he built it into now one of the top pastry destinations in the world. And what's so amazing about him is he, his staff is mostly, I think the average age is somewhere around 19, 20. It's, it's kids and they are doing really well. His bar chef is maybe 21. He goes to cocktail mixing competitions and then this skinny Indonesian kid shows up and blows away the kind of 40 year old uh, tattooed bearded Australians. And to wrap up the whole anecdote is what really inspires me about people like Will is that they are so singularly determined what you need to do to, to really push the boundaries in, in food and beverage, but then at the same time have the graciousness to step back and let other people make that vision theirs. Stories like those, how can you have a singular vision and, and really act on this in a really determined way? but not make it all about you and, and give other people, give your team, give your customers the, the room to make it their place. And I think that's what inspires me the most at the moment. And those are the stories that I'm really looking for. 
It's amazing. Before we finish, tell me what, you know, we're heading into 2021. 2020 has been a, a really difficult year, obviously, on so many levels, politically, economically, uh, health-wise, racial injustice. You know, there's just all sorts of things that have happened. What rays of sunshine do you see going into 2021 for your business and your life and and us in general? I think for the business and for the life is a lot of people are seeing that their preconceived notions of what's possible in their life uh, came falling apart. So, so that can have some positive effects. Uh, uh, do we want everybody to become a quote-unquote digital nomad? Maybe not necessarily, but an awful lot of folks are figuring out this, hey, we could spend one or two months a year, even with our family in a completely different environment that's interesting for us, that broadens our horizon, uh, opens it up. And that's a really beautiful development that I'm looking forward both on a personal business level and also on a societal level. I'm putting in my green card application right now, so I'm looking forward to get my citizenship letter in five years signed by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. So uh there's a new generation coming up and they're seeing things quite differently. And I'm wildly optimistic about them. That's fantastic. It's fantastic. Listen, Bruno, it's been a a pleasure speaking with you as always. It was great to reconnect. Thanks for taking a few minutes and joining us on Colorcast today. Likewise. Thank you so much for all the good work and effort you put into connecting the industry. And it's always terribly appreciated and hopefully see you in person soon. I look forward to it. That would be great. Thanks very much. This is Indie Colorcast, powered by Radio Kismet. And I'm Andrew Benioff, founder and chairman of the Independent Lodging Congress. Indie Colorcast is where we explore independent hospitality, entrepreneurship, and society at large through conversations with leaders in our community of hoteliers, designers, and others to encourage idea generation and new ways of conducting meaningful business. Indie Colorcast.